This is Fun Empire Radio. Hi, this is Joe. And I'm Amy. And this is What Makes It Fun with Joe. And Amy. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to another episode of What Makes It Fun with Joe and Amy. I am Joe. I'm Amy. And this episode we have our guest, um, Chuck Dixon, who uh, I think you would like to introduce Chuck Dixon. <laughs> Chuck Dixon changed my life. Uh, he was, I was, it was a huge comic book fan in my young teenage years. And Chuck Dixon wrote my favorite stories of all time. He was like a huge influence on the way that I write, the stories that I like, uh, the way I build characters. And like uh, Joe was kind enough to get in contact with him and we Skyped an interview with him. That's fantastic. And like I, you know, squeal with geeky joy all over him in uncomfortable ways, but he takes it like a champ. And it was like a dream come true to talk to this man. He's so insightful. He's such a good storyteller. He's such an amazing person, and you're going to absolutely love this interview with him. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I was so happy to have him on. He was really great. And after the interview, um, Amy and I are going to have a round of almost fun and certified fun, so stay tuned. Hey, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Hey, Chuck, how's it going? I can hear you both. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, first, I want to thank you so much for making time out of your busy schedule to be interviewed by us. Sure. Uh, cool. So um, this podcast is about uh, we interview uh, a bunch of entertainers from Disney Imagineers to uh, producers, um, dancers, artists, and obviously comic book writers about what makes a product fun. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Okay. Cool. Cool. So first thing I want to talk about actually is you have a new book coming out called Levin's Night. Yeah, Levon's Night. Oh, Levon's Night. Sorry. That's um, all right. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a second in a uh, series of books I'm writing about a guy named Levon Cade. Uh, he's a he's a former military guy, uh, but I never specify what branch he was in. Uh, it just suffice to say that you know he's he's not a bad he's not a guy to get on the wrong side of, and uh, basically he's living in the United States again. He's back from his tours of duty, and um, he's acting as a uh, sort of vigilante uh, on his own. Um, he he gets hired by his boss uh, when he's working in a construction company uh, to um, find the boss's daughter. Uh, and that's the first book. And everything goes wrong. Uh, uh, but Levon kills a lot of bad guys in the first book. But then uh, because of what he does in the first book, has to go on the run with his uh, 11-year-old daughter. Uh, the second book, Levon's Night, picks up with them. They're, they're living under assumed names and, and stolen identities uh, in a lake community in Maine uh, when in the middle of middle of a Maine winter, which uh, is a heck of a winter, uh, a, a gang of international thieves arrives at the community to uh in search of a fortune worth hundreds of millions of dollars and um levon is really the only person standing between them and uh the people living around the lake so that's the gist of that one that sounds cool um is this is this a, a big departure from what you're used to writing or is there something you wanted to explore with this well, it's it's prose, which was a big leap for me um, from comics. 
uh, I, I've always just wanted to be a comic book scripter, uh, just write comics. That's all I was ever interested in. I, I didn't uh, set out to be a screenwriter or a novelist. Uh, comics weren't a stepping stone for me. Um, they were a destination. <laughs> so, um, But the market being what it is, uh, I, there simply wasn't enough comic work for me. Um, so I, I, I jumped to... Um, into doing prose books and and the uh, the magnificent opportunity offered by ebooks and Kindle is is an irresistible pull. Uh, I get to write without anybody having to give me permission to write or pitching or gatekeepers of any kind. And uh, so you know I'm, I'm on my 14th novel now. Wow, that's amazing. Um, who are some of your inspiration? Who are some of your inspirations for getting into comic book writing? Well, the first name I ever noticed as a writer was Archie Goodwin, um, and he, you know, eventually became kind of a mentor for me at both Marvel and DC. But I, I loved his writing when I was a kid. I mean, elementary school, and and just sort of followed his career. And then, uh, so he he was the biggest influence by far. And well, like, what steps did you take to start getting into uh, writing? Well, I just endless interviews and endless successions of having my soul crushed and, <laughs> and then going going back home and repairing my soul and, and returning for more interviews um, I, I tried to break into comics in the 70s which was the worst time imaginable because uh, DC had what they called their implosion where they laid off half their employees uh, sales were down uh, comics were you know uh, comics were heading for the rocks and it was hard so uh, consequently I really didn't get any full-time work until the 80s but I spent about 10 years endlessly going to interviews, going to conventions, talking to editors, um, you know, getting advice. But in the 80s, when it all blew up again, uh, there were more opportunities. So I got in and I, would, I never left. Uh, what book that you've written is your favorite? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I, 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 first one that comes to mind is Winter World. It was a series I did uh, in the 80s that recently returned at IDW. I created it with Jorge Zafino. And uh, it was really my first big creator-owned project. Um, well, just going off on slight tangent, uh, I, I really love your writing. I actually grew up on, on Robin and Nightwing books, my sister and I. Cool. And yeah, you, you were like a huge influence to both of us on like how we write now and the kind of stories that we like. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know it's weird, but like I, I once really weird. Uh, I once tried to message you on a on a message board, and I spelt your name wrong, and like I still think about it to this day. <laughs> I was so timid to do it, and then someone called me out, and I was like, I will never go on the internet again. <laughs> Sorry. Well, maybe maybe it's a good thing I chased you away from the internet. Right. Yeah. No. It probably would have sucked me in and killed me. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, I'm just going to, like, focus in on that for a second. I want to know about, like, what your process was in, like, writing the Tim Drake Robin and the Dick Grayson Nightwing for those books from back in the 90s. Well, um, it, it, I was invited to write Robin by, by Denny O'Neill, uh, who I didn't even know knew I was alive. Um, he invited me because he read some of my work on a book called Airboy for Eclipse, and he liked how I handled a, a teenage character. And... Um, so he, he brought me in, and my policy then is the same as it is now. Uh, I don't just accept a job, even one as cool as writing 
for the Batman family until I've had time to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I met with Denny and I asked him to explain to me, you know, Robin's role in the Batman family. Cause I didn't quite understand it, even though I was a Batman fan, lifelong Batman fan. And, uh, so Denny explained the Trinity of Batman, Alfred and Robin, how important it was mm -hmm. to, to the franchise and how without, without his family, Batman is just some sort of a tragic psychotic loner. Um, and, and Alfred and Robin ground him. And and once I understood that, I realized that a lot of my favorite Batman stories were actually Robin-centric mm -hmm. uh, because there was that humanity and, and there was a stake. There was something at stake. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, I, 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 I agreed to do it, handed in an outline. They liked it and it, it, it went crazy. I mean, it was far more successful than any of us thought that it would be. I mean, we went into printing after printing on it and... Uh, and I, I was on the monthly book for 100 issues. So, you know, I got to put a stamp on the, the Batman canon as it existed then. <laughs> uh, Nightwing was a different, it was a totally different deal. Um, it was The series was originally going to be co-written by Denny and uh, Alan Grant. And for whatever reason, they bailed three weeks before the first script was due. Good. So, Scott, <laughs> Scott, oh, that's terrible. Scott Peterson, uh, the editor called me in kind of a panic and said, would, would you take the book on? Would you please take the book on? And so I really didn't have any time to think about it. And I said, well, what are you looking for from this book? And he says, I want a Jackie Chan movie every issue. And so that's that's the template I used, and I, I went for it. And I, I wrote I wrote Nightwing straight for almost a month. Um, and by the time Scott McDaniel started on the book, I completed almost the first year of continuity. That's so awesome. <laughs> uh, was there any character that like you really wanted to write or were really happy that you got to write? Uh, well, Batman was a dream. I never in my wildest imagination thought I would ever write Batman. I mean, when Denny invited me in, I thought I was going to write Robin and that would be it. But he kept asking me to do other stuff and finally gave me Detective Comics. So that's like a pinch me, I'm dreaming kind of experience. I really never had any, because everybody who gets into comics has that shot at, you know, they want to write Spider-Man or they want to write Batman. I really didn't have those kind of goals other than I wanted to write Punisher. Um, uh, I really didn't have those goals. I love the medium. I just wanted to be in it. Whatever they wanted me to write, I would write. But, but to get to do Batman is like, wow. I mean, I, every time I typed the words Batman and Robin, I would get a thrill. <laughs> and when you, when you did get to write Punisher, like, what was that like? It, it, it was, I, you know, I always say, I, I don't know what this says about me, but it, Punisher is just such a perfect fit for me. It's just, it just feels so natural to write a character. He's got every negative male stereotype. I mean, he's just an awful person. Um, you know, he's a, he's a guy with no rules but his own and, and God knows what they are and uh, it, it just seems like a natural fit I mean for me and I really I, I always enjoyed writing him more than any other licensed character I've ever worked on uh, one of the things I loved uh, growing up when I was reading Robin comics is I thought you did a, a really good job with female characters like do you have a, like a certain way that you get into their heads or do you treat them like any other characters like what's your process for that well, I, I was the youngest in my family with two older sisters, and I guess that's where it comes from. I really don't know where it comes from. I've always had an affinity mm -hmm. for female characters. Um, part of it is that female characters still are, the, you know, they're still seen as the underdog, same as, teen, you know, younger characters. Um, they're seen as the underdog. So uh, and there's nothing I like better than a story, the, the who you don't know who you're messing with story, as I call it. <laughs> uh, 
you know, where the, the, the bad guys simply have no idea and have totally underestimated the protagonist. And when it's a woman, it's even easier and it's even cooler when, you know, she comes out victorious over guys, you know, bigger than her. Uh, so, you know, I guess it comes from those two things, you know, the, the underdog and, and, and being raised with sisters. So it's like, you know, I saw them fight often enough. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any, like, uh, the way that you write villains? Like, what goes through your mind when you're writing somebody who's supposed to be a villain? Well, he, he has to have a clear motivation that, you know, it's not just I'm going to take over the world or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill Batman. He has to have a clear motivation that, to some extent is also somewhat relatable or sympathetic uh, even though his methods are horrible. I mean, Mr. Freeze is a tragic character who's doing everything he can to basically bring his wife back to life. Uh, so you feel for him, but but he's a rotten guy. Uh, you know, what he does to, to, to achieve those ends you know, is reprehensible. So um, there, there has to be that little bit of sympathy for the character. Uh, otherwise um, they're just you know some cardboard cutout you know bad guy and and, and, and he, you know you can't relate to them anyway it's like when you're watching a heist movie you know every the, the main characters are breaking the law they're going to steal something but you're still on their side because the story focuses it that way <laughs> you know they, they you know these are the guys you're rooting for even though they're breaking the law so um you know that's what i aim for uh, there has to be something you maybe not like about the character but at least you can see yourself in and now that you're writing for, you've, you've written a book, 14 novels actually, and written comic books, is there like, do you prefer one medium to the other now? Well, I prefer comics, but I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable with prose now. Uh, and I just like the aspect that I don't have to like pitch and ask for permission. And, you know, mm-hmm. if I come up with an idea, I write it. You know, I've got an editor, I've got other people. It's not like I think I'm, you know, my words are carved in stone. Every single one of them are precious. Uh, you know, so, you know, I have people that read it and, and give me advice and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's my idea. I don't have to wait. Um, and comics are so expensive to produce. I mean, yeah, yeah. If I if I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd probably start producing my own creator own comics. But it gets expensive. Mm-hmm. So when you're sitting down to write, like speaking as somebody who's like currently has writer's block, like what's something that you do to like get started to like get into that creative space? I I read it. it this is like the, you know, there's always. You, the most dangerous thing in the world is you can read these books on how to write or read magazines with articles about writing and, and you go oh I don't do any of those things ever. that sounds silly right but um, but there's one really corny piece of advice I got out of an interview with a with a guy who wrote for Hollywood in the 40s and, and his advice was never write down your last idea of the day that way you know where you're going to start the next day and it sounds dumb but it works for me every time I'll get to that last bit of dialogue exchange or whatever it is that I was going to write and I go well I'm going to leave that for tomorrow I know what it is I'll remember it and I leave it for the next day and then I know where I'm starting and you know that's really all it takes I mean if you write yourself you know you just got to prime the pump you just got to get those fingers on the keys moving and you know that's the hardest part because you'll find a million other things to do I'm going to clean my desk I'm going to make tea there's somebody at the door you know there's a million ways to distract yourself but if you but if you wake up in the morning knowing I, I'm going to write that scene where, you know, the, the husband and wife are arguing. Um, then, you know, there you go. You're off to the races. And do you have any novelists that you look after? I know we, we talked about your comic book influences, but now that you're writing novels, is there like a novelist who inspired you? 
Well, uh, Eggie Rice Burroughs, creator of Tarzan, basically taught me how to write action, which is, from what I understand from other writers, is the most difficult thing to achieve. So I kind of learned reading and rereading his stuff. Uh, another writer is Donald Westlake, who, uh, you know, he wrote The Hot Rock. He created the, the Parker novels as Richard Stark, and I, I've read and reread them. Uh, and, and his handle on, you know, balancing characters, uh, writing very lean, you know, um, not, not overwriting, and uh, also writing, you know, characters who are enigmatic but still interesting. Um, that's, you know, he's, he's definitely an influence. And then there's other guys, you know, more recent that I've read that, you know, I, I try to understand. I, I, I read and reread Cormac McCarthy trying to figure out how he does what he does, but I, I have not yet been able to do that. Well, like, so what type of stories and, like, what type of characters, like, interest you the most? Um, I, I guess everyday characters. Years ago in an interview, I was asked, you know, about what kind of characters I like, you know, what stakes for my characters I like to have. And I said, well, I'd rather read about a guy having trouble making his car payment than a guy saving the universe because I can't relate to saving the universe. So on some level, I, I just finished a, a Levon Cade novella in which his car gets stolen. And the rest of us would do what we do when our car gets stolen. Well, Levon doesn't. He goes hunting for his car. Uh, and, and that's what I based it on. We can all relate to it, but I mean, if you've ever had your car stolen, or even if you've had your car keyed in the parking lot, you know that sense of rage and frustration. And we can all relate to it. I mean, I, I wrote a Punisher story about once about Punisher stuck in the drive through line at a fast food burger <laughs> truck with, with, a, with, a, with a truckload of killers behind him. Uh, and I thought, well, we all know this frustration, not the truckload of killers. But, you know, being behind the guy with like the biggest, most bizarre order in the world. You know, and this is the guy I pulled in behind. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to keep the stories relatable. I don't write on grand themes. Mm. Um, so for a lot of these characters, they're established and people know like the ins and outs of how they're going to react for the most part in certain situations. How do you keep like a surprise element or element of discovery in your work? Um, that's interesting. I guess you delve into who the character is and see what, what might be a moral challenge for them or, or, um, or, or just complicate their lives is, is another thing. I mean, when I was on Robin, we would have, uh, Meetings and they, we would discuss. They would always subject would always come up to kill Tim Drake's dad, and I said, "Please don't kill Tim Drake's Tim Drake's dad. He's the only character in this cast who has a legitimate reason to hide his secret identity, uh, because he has he actually has a life outside of being a superhero. I mean, Batman really doesn't have a life. I mean, he shows up at a board meeting looking, you know, like he'd rather be somewhere else, and you know, Bruce Wayne doesn't really have that much of a life outside of Batman." But Tim Drake has a, a charade that he had to keep up with for for people close to him, and to kill his father—that's the last his last tie to the real world. So, so uh, complications like that, and then moral quandaries. I, I did a, a, a book with Graham Nolan called *Devil's Advocate*, in which Joker is sentenced to death for a crime that Batman knows he did not commit. And of course, Batman's quandary is: well, he certainly killed enough people to deserve the electric chair. Uh, do I just stand by, or, or am I really on the side of justice? And do I prove that the Joker is innocent of this crime? Uh, so, you know, it's things like that that kind of keep it hopping. Otherwise, the, the characters are just—they're just into a story. The, the key is is to not make the story about the character, but to come up with a, a good, solid story and have the character in it. 
Mm. Yeah. And by the way, as a reader, I really did want Tim Drake's dad to live, and I was really <laughs> sad when they died because I was like, ah, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very... I mean, they 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 wanted him. I don't know. It's like they had a t- bullseye on his head the whole time I was writing that book. I was like, no, 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 this is a mistake. Yeah, I think they probably want that like immediate emotional response of like, oh no, dad's dead, and I was like, no, it was so cool because he had to hide it from so many people. <laughs> that made me so happy. I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, what if they find out? They can accept him. I don't know. I'm 12. <laughs> um, thinking back to like what you know, early days of writing, like what was the first time that you remember like entertaining someone with your writing? That was elementary school. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we were we were given an assignment. A teacher came around. I think I was in third grade. Came around with a box of of pictures cut out of magazines, and she said, "Here, write. You know, everyone take one picture." And write a story about about that picture, what might be happening in that picture. And I said, "Can I have more than one picture?" <laughs> so I took like four of them, and 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 you know, the next day we all came to school with our stories, and everybody read theirs, and you know, that was it. And, and I was one of the last kids to get up. I read my story, I got a laugh from the class, and then that was it. <laughs> this is this is what I want to do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, do you have Do you have any advice if there's some like kids out there who want to do comic books um, for a living? Uh, do you have any advice for them on on how to get started or where to turn? Well, I mean, the whole like every other business now in, in light of the internet, the whole business has completely changed, uh, and comics are harder to get into as a writer, I think, than they've ever been. I mean, I'm talking about mainstream big company comics because. You know, they turn to um, TV writers and novelists now for, mm-hmm. for the high-end books because they can get a little bang out of the, um, you know, places like Publishers Weekly and out of the media over things like that. And so it's harder to get in that, that arena. But, but on the other hand, there is the Internet. And, and you can, you know, as long as you can find an artist, you can put web comics up mm-hmm. and, and get, you know, depending on how long you want to spend uh, hammering away at, at, at social media, you can get a lot of exposure and you can get noticed. I mean, Axe Cop is one of the most obvious oh, yeah. examples. You know, a completely ludicrous idea <laughs> that caught on. I mean, I'm not. I'm, lud- I'm saying ludicrous in a good way. Yeah. That caught on and and you know and got a life of its own and publisher and a, apparently a, either a movie or TV deal. I forget which. <laughs> and and so you know that's a way to get noticed. I mean, there are people making. I mean, it, it's it, this is true for everybody. I mean, you, you find out about this internet sensation that has made the the creator wealthy, and you've never heard of it, you know, mm. because there's there's four billion people on the planet. Um, you know, you don't have to have heard of it for somebody to actually be making money and having a creative good time on it. So so there's there's that avenue, and then there's you know the smaller independent publishers, and and there's motion comics. And, you know, there's just a whole new world for this stuff, and there's and there's also an international audience, which is really making it all possible. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm working for a company in India right now. Graham Nolan and I are creating a superhero line for them. Awesome. So you know, it's it, 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 it there's good news and bad news. Uh, is there a difference for writing for like a company in India, like just how their culture is and how it differs from how you would write a comic book for an American audience? Well, I mean, the the guys that that, that brought Graham and I on, I mean, um, I explained to them, I said, look, I'm not going to pretend I I know Indian culture. 
uh, that's insulting. You know, and mm-hmm. I and I know you know it's a it's a it's a billion and a half people. You know, so there's not you know there's not even a stereotype for all of them. I mean, it, it, it's such a diverse crisis. Right? So I'm just going to write this, and then you tell me. Uh, where I've gone wrong and what changes to make. I mean, you know, you guys will be my Obi-Wan Kenobi on this and just sort of guide me so that I'm not insulting anybody or missing something that might be entertaining that can be put in the story. And and they did, you know, it was, it was, it was a great collaboration with, with the uh, the editors on it. And then also I watched like a hundred Bollywood movies, which I'm now addicted to, so that, so that I understood not their culture, because you can't learn much about a culture from movies, you know, not, not anything really... <laughs> profound but but i but i learned what their audience expects to see it, it, as far as an entertainment vehicle goes and and i used all that and then it, it turned out it was all in my wheelhouse it's all you know mm-hmm. i i really I, I didn't know it but you know my, my robin run was about extended bollywood movie what was it oh my gosh i just watched bollywood that's <laughs> so great um are there any like like novice mistakes that people do that you would be like hey watch out or don't do this um, if you're if you're submitting to like a licensed character, make sure you're not writing in quotes the ultimate story of that character um, because it's usually wrong. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was working on Punisher, the uh, Don Daly, who was my editor, he had a drawer full of what he called the ultimate Punisher story, and written by writers of various degrees of talents, all the way up to like known names who submitted. I got this great idea for the Punisher, and the remarkable thing is they were all exactly the same story. Wow. Uh, the Punisher in some sort of firefight, one of his stray bullets kills a child, and he quits being the Punisher. And every story was exactly the same, you know. And then something at the end draws him back to, to, to being the Punisher, and and that's what you have to avoid. That you're writing something that that just has all the tropes in it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just a big big old basket of cliches. You've really got to find a different angle uh, on that character, something no one's really no one's done before, and no one's done, you know. But not for a reason, you know. They just nobody's ever thought of this angle before. Mm-hmm. So what is it in comics or in writing that you think is fun? Like, what draws an audience in? Uh, to me, it's, it's um, well, my approach to it is that you learn about the characters by what they do, not what they say. And, um, they, you know, <clears throat> and, 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 and then a strong opening. You know, you got to have a strong opening to draw the reader in. You can't have three people talking the reader has never seen before. And one of the best provisos, and it, and, it, and it also sounds corny, is, you know, think of every comic you write as that person's first comic book. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you're in the middle of a six-story arc, you can still draw them in to, to you know, if they, if they cold picked up part four, if you make your opening engaging enough and interesting enough to draw them into the story, you know, so they'll read that part of the story <clears throat> and they'll get from beginning to end without interruption. That's my thing. You know, i got to draw them in and keep them in. You know, keep them in the tent once I got them in there, mm-hmm. and um, but yeah, that's you know, you know that's my simple plan: keep the story moving, learn by what the characters do, open strong, and the endings usually take care of themselves. Is there any writer that's like doing comic books right now that that you're like, man, they really got it down; they know what they're doing? I hate this question. Oh, <laughs> but they won't ask it. <laughs> no, everybody everybody asks <clears throat> either that or what current comics you're reading. And uh, I really don't follow current comics that much, so I haven't. Mm. Uh, I like what um, 
I'll tell you what, I like what Eric Burnham did on Ghostbusters a lot because that was such a challenging assignment to capture those disparate voices, and he, and he did it to perfection. Um, but I really, I can't, I can't think of anything current that I've read that I want, hey, I wish I'd thought of that. I used to do that all the time, but, but a lot of the guys I admired that were my peers at the time, mm-hmm. are, are they, aren't, they aren't in comics anymore. Uh-huh. Um, do you, when you're writing stories, do you focus on, do you focus on the characters or do you focus on how the people are going to perceive it? Like how much is, is the reader present when you're writing? Well, it depends on what I'm writing. When I'm writing novels, I don't think about the reader at all. Uh, I just write what I want to write. And, and you know, uh, I can't be worried because in prose, I found you can really intimidate yourself by thinking, well, what, what's, you know, what's some librarian in Iowa going to think of this? You know, I, so you can't think of that. When I write comics, especially mainstream superhero comics, I think of a precocious 10-year-old. <laughs> so a, a kid who's reading above his reading level, you know, for, for his grade and, and who, um, who is very judgmental uh, about story. If you bore him, he's actually going to get angry about it. Uh, you know, because I learned, I, I wrote kids books for a while. And the one thing I learned was a kids want story, 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 story. That's mm-hmm. all they want is story. And you can't fool them. Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino could never write a children's book because you can't fool people with with clever dialogue and oddball characters. You got to have a story. Nothing against Quentin Tarantino, but you know that's what he does. But but you know that's <clears throat> so that's the only time I really focus on on who the reader is. The rest of the time, it's you know as long as I know I'm being cruel to them. <laughs> um, so sort of a odd question, but have you seen the movie Monster Squad? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, from the 80s? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Did you like the movie? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Oh, yes! <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked it a lot. I watched, I watched that one a bunch of times. Oh. I think I showed that to my boys when they were younger, a few years ago. Yeah. But no, that was a fun movie. That's such a good movie. It's my favorite movie. Like, I hope Chuck Dixon likes this movie. Does it say something about the way we think? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You know, we, there's a rapport there we didn't even know about. <laughs> that's what I always tell people when they're looking to get into comics is find it find an editor who edits things you like because chances are there's a rapport there if he if he edits the stuff you like then you know you must have something in common Hmm. that's interesting um so when you how do you this is like very difficult depending on your medium uh how do you retain readers is there any kind of techniques you go through are you conscious of it about making sure that they come back every issue yeah, that's the harder part because you you've got retailers in the way, um, and and the comics are weird because you know they'll order lots of number ones and very few of number two, <laughs> and it's a matter of availability. Um, they still order like there's a speculators market, and and there isn't. No, nobody's buying these things. Your number one's not going to be worth that much money, you know, because it's not scarce. Um, and, but they still order that way. They're they're in a business model from from you know the eighties and the early nineties, and consequently, your number one issue is available everywhere. And when your number two issue comes out, it's no longer on the rack by the weekend because all the copies have sold out uh, because they only ordered three or four. 
And um, that's a problem because, you know, if people don't see it, they're not going to buy it. You know, you're not, I mean, who goes down the comic rack going, hey, where's, you know, Doodah Man number four? (laughs) You're you're just going to forget Doodah Man ever existed because you don't see it. So, so, so that's a problem. And, um, you know, that's a problem I don't have when I do ebooks because, you know, it's up to me to get the word out. And, and, and with ebooks, the more you do, the more they sell, like in normal publishing. Mm -hmm. This isn't normal publishing. I mean, if, if you, if you put out a new magazine, and the first issue sells through at the newsstands. Mm-hmm. The the news agent orders more of the next issue, not less, oh. because that that book sold through. So it's like, oh, people like this. <laughs> but in comics, it's the exact opposite. Oh, people like this. I'm going to order you know ten percent of what I did last time. <laughs> because so there's weird. so much you know. I mean, I'm not coming down on retailers. They've got to make these decisions, and, and a lot of times it's make or break from there for, for a lot of them on a month to month basis. They have to be careful what they order, but mm-hmm. but it, but. There's got to be a way to break that cycle. When when I was at Eclipse, that we used to break that cycle by simply sending them more copies, whether they ordered them or not. <laughs> and if they sold them, they paid us. If they didn't, they kept them. You know, we didn't care, but we had to get those books on the shelves and keep them. Right. And that, but today, I don't know how you build a readership because there's this downward slope from issue one on. All right, guys. Uh, such a great interview <laughs> with Chuck Dixon. I love Chuck Dixon. I love him so much. I hope you yeah. guys really enjoyed that because he is such a great, great person and just such a friendly guy. Yeah, he's so nice. Like, yeah. Uh, all right, comic books. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about, like, comic books that are... Like, a lot of... I was talking earlier with Amy. Uh, a lot Comic books, sometimes they don't get the respect that they deserve as a storytelling device from a lot of artists. I know I've heard some people say that in comic books they're not really that well written or they don't tell that great of a story they kind of work on archetypes too much and i'm sure there is some of that because as amy was saying earlier she said that um you have to do these every month and sometimes Mm -hmm. some some heroes like spider-man or batman they have multiple versions of that character that have to have stories every month so i'm sure there is some of that but there are also really great moments in storytelling in in comic books um, did you want to start off with a uh, couple? Yeah, I'm going to start off with actually, like, d- despite that, uh, I talk about Chuck Dixon, who's an American writer. Um, one, I want to talk about a manga that actually, like, changed my life when I read it. And so growing up, like, since I was a kid, like, my favorite shape is a star. And I've always loved stars. And then the second favorite shape, because as a child, you always have runner-ups, um, <laughs> mine was a spiral, like, you know, on a magician's hat or something. Like, yeah. it all, like, seemed so magical and fun and cute, and I really enjoyed that. So one day, back, uh, back in the day, I picked up a book called Uzumaki, which is Japanese for spiral. And the whole book, it's a three-book-long uh, three series that talks about a town that is possessed by the shape of the spiral and all the different ways that the spiral can basically haunt these people and twist their minds and twist their bodies. And it is one of the freakiest <laughs> books ever. Um, and when I read it, like, it hooked me immediately. Uh, I, started, I read the whole series, like, in a row, um, and it changed my perspective on a shape that I had loved from childhood. Instead of seeing it as this cute, magical shape or someone's dizzy, adorable, (laughs) I saw it as like this twisting, haunting thing trying to like, like just creep into your life. 
and that it was around you reminding you of its presence and everything from like you know an, like an eddy in the water or like the swirl of leaves like all of that stuff like it was just an inch away from you like mm. what Hitchcock did for birds and like you know showers I think mm. Uzumaki did for me in Spiral and that was just done in three books and it made a huge difference on me and how I feel today even about that shape and how do you think they were able to accomplish that like they obviously the the comic obviously got you at some point it got you interested and invested and do you know how that progression happened where you got to the point where it just scarred you for life yeah yeah that's just tr- truly what it did um and i think it was like the story drew me in like a spiral um, <laughs> like you get it's just this is something that you know as i've been doing more and more of these podcasts i feel is is coming more and more in my brain about what engages me in a story mm-hmm. and one of the things and i think this is true of most people one of the things is what's the mystery of it there's something I don't know. There's mm-hmm. something that doesn't make sense. Like my synapse can't bridge these two things that you've presented to me, but I know there's something there because you're a storyteller. Right. And when I first was reading the book, like there were so there is this spiral just kept showing up in a different way around this town in front of this poor girl and her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Like they're just like, ah. <laughs> and then it was just, and how many different ways can this affect people? And the spiral in this book is like a sickness that bleeds into everything. And it's already been there. There's been symptoms there every, all the time. There's symptoms in the real world. And because I can make that connection, I think you call it resonance. Mm-hmm. That I can see that in my re, in my real life, I can see these different ways that this shape has crept into my life, mm-hmm. just like it crept into the lives of the people in the book. And then also the art is beautiful and graphic mm-hmm. and the situation is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And also you can relate to these people. Like if you were in this situation, if you were trapped in this town, you would be going crazy too. Yeah. And so I, I think that just that mystery and that like drawing of you in and then the resonance, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. is what made this stick with me and made me believe it and changed me. Yeah. And it, it's funny because I, I read that same book and the thing that really made it, because there's so many, it seemed to... I didn't know it was going to turn the way it did. Mm-hmm. So when it finally did, it, it, I was still on board with it. It, it didn't make a, it didn't jump the shark. It didn't make it, it wasn't unbelievable what happened. It, they still, they did it in a way where it made sense for the world, but, but they just went so, they just took such a hard turn mm. when what happens is this kid gets run over by a car Oh my god! and he comes out in a spiral shape but you see his face and it's very graphic and it's like whoa that really happened and it's it's yeah they really they they really caught you they really made you believe in the world and then they did a really hard turn in the world and it's so it's kind of kind of like a bully in a way <laughs> they kind of like they kind of have their way with you a little bit but um but uh but it also kind of works like especially in a horror setting because you walk through your own life being like this is how it is this is my life and then when your life takes a hard turn like that which it can like if there's yeah. some tragedy but mm-hmm. for a horror to happen like that you have to be like this could happen to anyone this spiral shape could move along to any town and infect anyone yeah and it's so it's it's so good like it resonates so well like it it was very believable Mm -hmm. and that's what made it horrifying yes absolutely (laughs) the believability of it 
So uh, go out and get Uzumaki. <laughs> yeah. We're getting like paid for this. <laughs> um, I have an almost fun, which is the complete opposite of this. Uh, I've always, I mean, I've been reading comics, you know, since I was a kid, I was a big comic fan. I haven't read really, I haven't been up to date on comics for the last decade or so. But I've always seen comics in general as like really cool stories, and I, I like them. But they've always been like, okay, are they going to beat the guy up? They they did, and they won, and they won their rights back, or they saved Storm, or whatever. But I've never been, I've never laughed out of comic before as a comedy until I read The Simpsons: Radioactive Man issue oh, one. Nice, cool. And it's it's so funny because I. Because it's a comic, you don't expect it to have the timing of the animated show. But it was almost better than the show. Wow. Because they they got to go a little bit deeper with the characters. But they but they also, I don't know, they made you... Because The Simpsons is, is really good at presenting a, a, a concept to you and then never answering why that happened and then just continuing on. And never knowing why the situation happened is often the funny part. Mm. Like, there's an episode of Simpsons where the, the, the this repo man took Moe's floor away from his bar and and he's like, come on, I need my floor. The, the my get the, uh, my patrons are walking on 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 uh, on pipes. And then the, the repo man's like, well, you should pay your bills next time. And then Mo's like, I don't wanna. And he walks out. And then they end it like there. They don't answer whatever happened. And I like stuff like that, like like absurd humor. And they do a ton of that. And you could, you could go back in the comic and read it and be like, why did that happen? But they never answer and they just keep going with the story. And it's so funny because I never thought you could have that kind of comedic timing in a comic book, especially as absurd as The Simpsons. But the Radioactive Man, actually the entire Radioactive Man series was really well done. And they actually did really cool stuff. Like they, Because Radioactive Man in The Simpsons universe was supposed to be from like the 50s and stuff. So the next issue that came out was like issue 84 of Radioactive Man. <laughs> and they just get, they did big jumps. Like he was in the 70s and then in the 80s because they can play around with that because they're not, you know, they're, they're not beholden to any of the normal rules of comic comic books so just that that whole that whole series was really funny and i like how they it was a parody of comic books because they jumped around and they did really archetypal stereotypal stereotypical like storylines and villains and they would just make fun of all of that with the same timings as you would see in like an early 90s simpson episode so that's my certified fun is just something that really flips comic books on its head Nice. I think moving on to almost fun, I'm going to go with the exact opposite of what you just said. <laughs> okay. Opposite, opposite, opposite. Um, and also, like, you know, um, we're talking about comic books doing the thing they do over and over and over again. And like you talked about earlier, Joe, about, like, they have to do this every month and, you know, uh, they need to keep viewers, they need to keep you interested. One of the, the ploys that comic books ends up doing because they are up against a wall mm. is killing characters and bringing them back. And it's so annoying and disingenuous for the reader to be like, wow, holy crap, they killed Bucky. Bucky's really dead. Oh, never mind. Or Jason Todd. I was really sad when, like, we voted him to die. And then they brought him back, and now he's a member of the Bat family, and everyone's got a place. Yeah. And it's just it's infuriating as a reader because you do want that, like, 
cathartic feeling to like really weep and feel bad that like Mary Jane died or like yeah. you're never going to see Wolverine again. And it's like, but you're, you are. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, comic book fans are just like, well, I'm really irritated that they killed my favorite character, but you know, that just means I'm not going to be able to see them for, you know, a few months, maybe like a, a, a number of years, but they'll be back. And then it just, it really cheapens the feeling that's produced. Yeah. Even, uh, even going into, yeah, like there's no, there's no stakes and you need stakes in order for there to be any kind of tension. Mm -hmm. Um, because if if someone is going to die in, in a comic book, you're like, ah, he's going to come back next year. So it's fine. But kind of going into my, um, almost fun is, uh, Superman. Like Uh this is going to be like five seconds long, but Superman is just overpowered. Nothing could ever hurt him. I think he can't see through a certain material of steel, uh, a certain, there's a certain thing lead. he can't, yeah, he can't see through lead. Oh no, you know, <laughs> he's fucked now, but like, doesn't matter. He's, he's overpowered, but also Superman came back to life too. <laughs> like Doomsday killed him and we're like, oh my God, there's funeral for a friend. It went across Justice League and all these comic books. It was really epic and pretty well done. It probably could have done it with someone better than Doomsday, but it was still really cool. And I was like, oh, Superman dies on the news. And then like, I don't know. And then, then four Superman came out after him. And then, then he came back also. So it's just like, uh, you do long-term damage to the brand and the comic industry as a whole doing stuff like that, I think. Um, any last thoughts on comic books at all? Comic books are so good. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think they're just like, I still really enjoy comic books. It's also been a number of years since I've like uh, since I've read them, but there's just so many good titles and indie titles also, which which are whole, a whole different beast because they're just not as long running and uh, they can be you know as commonplace as just talking about a family trying to get along with each other. Right. It's just a great medium because it's both visual and it's um, written and like you have two different ways of expressing this stuff to you. It's it's fascinating. I don't know. I like I love comic books and everyone else should also. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us for this episode um we have a bunch of pretty cool guests coming up we have uh, we're we're gonna have astrologists coming up and um hackers and uh sex therapists people <laughs> all things that are really fun everything everything fun is coming up so stay stay tuned for more fun but only if you want to have fun uh you can reach us at what makes and amelia clover you can do ameliaclover.com or Amelia, Amelia Clover VO at Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, any of that. All right. Uh, thanks for listening and keep having fun. It's an order.